Let's bow our hearts in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, by your grace, we come before you tonight. We thank you so very much for the provision that you've made in your own Son, Jesus Christ. How wonderful it is just to know you and just to love you. And Father, we, we just pray that according to your mercy and grace, that we will, be, we will be concentrating in these days upon ridding our lives of any of the lingering doubts and fears and habits of the old life. So we might live a life that is pure and clean and right in your sight. Lord, there's so much that tends to make inroads into the areas of our life that are so vulnerable. And Lord, we pray that we might have your very special help and protection in these days. And may it be to your glory, for we pray in Christ's name, amen. The Jews have a legend that is recorded in their Talmud, which of course is not scripture, nor do we have any reason to believe that the legend is true. But sometimes some of those ancient Jewish writings give you very good illustrations. And this is such a legend. They claim that Abraham started on his journeys. And as he went, he looked up into the heavens and he saw the stars and said, I will worship the stars. He stayed up all night and gazed at the twinkling stars and then as it neared morning, the stars began to fade. And he thought, no, I can't worship the stars. The stars don't last. They're only here at night. The next night, as he was gazing up into the heavens, he saw the constellations. And if he thought, well, then I'll worship the constellations. But to his dismay, they disappeared as well, since they were only combinations of stars. The legend goes on and says that the next night, the full moon was shining, and Abraham looked at the moon and thought, then I'll worship the moon. And in this case, even though the moon as well faded, yet it was so impressive to his mind that he waited for a period of nearly a month, and the moon waned until it was only a thin crescent in the sky, and he thought, this is foolish. I can't worship the moon. And so he became a sun worshiper. And he worshipped the sun. But as evening came and he was watching the sun set, he thought, no, there's, there's no way that I can worship the sun. The sun obviously is only bright a part of the day. And then he said, finally, then I'll worship God, the Creator, for he abides forever. As I said, it's simply a legend. 
We don't know exactly how Abraham came to the place where he said, I'm going to worship God and him only am I going to serve. We just know that it happened, that God got a hold of Abraham's heart and called Abraham out of an idolatrous family, for Joshua chapter 1 tells us that his family was idolatrous. They worshipped idols. Terah and his family worshipped idols in the land where they lived, Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham became a monotheist. He worshipped the one true and living God. Uh, all of the concepts of religion in the world are related to theos in some way. Uh, there are some words that don't use that phrase, but there is the theos idea is, of course, behind all religious idea. Uh, let me give you a few of these. Deism. Deism believes that there is a God, but that he's an impersonal being. He could care less about what's happening. He exists, but he doesn't really have any interest, nor does he have any influence as far as time is concerned. Theism is a belief in God, just the belief in God in any sense. Monotheism believes in one God. Anism, animism, believes in many different gods inhabiting natural objects. This microphone is a god. This overhead projector is a god. Everything is a god. And, uh, of course, anim animism is very common in uh, countries like India, as an example, part of the Hindu, Hindu belief. And uh, that's why they uh, will not destroy any living creature for fear they might be killing a major god. And there is what is called uh, henoism, uh, henotheism actually. Henoism is used sometimes. Henotheism believes in one God but manifests in many different forms. It's another type of animism. It's one God but he's exp expressed in... Uh, um, many, many different ways, and, and therefore uh, still the microphone is a god and the overhead projector is a god and so on, but uh, it's all a part of one god. There's also uh, dualism, which believes in two gods, one good and one bad. There's pantheism, which is another form of an, uh, animism. Uh, believes that all nature are parts of deity and it is also found in places like India, part of the, the pagan religions and Hinduism and so on. You have uh, monists who believe in one reality, one great reality. Everything else is just an appearance or an illusion. And... Uh, have many gods as a pole is not real. God is real, and he is the one reality. We're not real. Um, therefore, we really can't have a relationship with God because God is real, and we're just imagining that we're here and so on. That's the <clears throat> monist idea.
And then, of course, you're very familiar with the idea of polytheists. Got to have an E in there. Polytheists. They believe in and worship many different gods. Many different gods. It varies in various places and various countries, but the point is that it stands in contrast to the monotheistic idea in that it is mono means one, poly means many. And so you have many gods as opposed to one god. Most of the world in Abraham's time was polytheist. Now, the two chief Egyptian deities were Horus and Isis. They were supposed to be the sun and the moon. Other inferior gods in Egypt were the stork and the ape and the cat and the hawk. And would you believe more than 20,000 other gods? Now that's polytheism. They worshipped a great many of these gods in, in many, many different ways. Thebes worshipped a ram, Memphis, an ox called Apis. Uh, Bubastis, a uh, cat, Memphis uh, also worshipped a cow, uh, the uh, Mendesians, a he-goat, those from Hyper... Uh, 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 I can't even say it, Hyperpolis, I can't even get the word out, uh, the, the Herm, Herm, Hermopolitans, what they're called, from Hermopolis. <laughs> Whoa! <clears throat> They worshipped a fish called, uh, called Lattice. Um, those from uh, Papri worshipped the hippopotamus. Uh, from uh, Lyconian, uh, they worshipped the wolf. Uh, the ibis, which was a bird, a type of a stork, was deified because it fed on serpents. And serpents were thought to be very high gods. And you've got something that feeds on serpents, then you've got a higher god. The crocodile, of course, was worshipped in Egypt out of terror. Uh, and uh, the weasel, uh, called the Iconium, uh, wor was worshipped as a very high deity because it fed on crocodile eggs, each god vying for leadership according to their particular place in nature. Here were the people, you see, who built the pyramids, some of the greatest engineering feats in all of history. And they worship loathsome insects and an animals as their god. Uh, the Phoenicians, who invented the alphabet, chained the images of their gods to an altar so that their gods couldn't get away, so they wouldn't go away and abandon them. Uh, the cultured men of Rome made important plans by using auguries derived from the entrails of the sheep or the flight of birds. If you happen to see the the uh, movie, uh, television movie, uh, Masada, almost every sequence. Uh, the uh, Roman uh, leader uh, was uh, calling upon the priest uh, to uh, show the entrails of the animals and discover whether the, the gods were with them or not. And a funny part of the, of the thing was when the, when the Jewish uh, people snuck down the, from the top of Masada and got into their camp and fed their animals, uh, save for sacrifice, uh, they fed their animals something that would poison their insides and cause gangrene to set in. And here they're waiting for this great guidance from their gods, and uh, lo and behold, they open the animal up, and what do they find? All kinds of maggots 
and uh, those maggots, of course, were were evidence that uh, uh, the gods were against them. And the reason the Jews had done that is because there was a storm that they knew was coming by the, the signs in the sky. And uh, right on the heels of this, they had this terrible sandstorm and uh, all, all a part of that Roman worship. Uh, Plutarch thought that the souls of men were, were made out of the moon. Uh, they were a part of the moon. And then when they died, they returned to the moon. Therefore, the moon was God. Plato, the great philosopher, along with Seneca, the great historian, thought that, that stars required nourishment and uh, were eager for pasture. Uh, they worshipped the stars. A traveler to Pompeii, uh, even today, is shown the temple of Isis, and there is the statue of divinity uh, through whose open lips the credulous worshippers of long ago fancied that they had received trustworthy answers to their petitions. But as, you, as the thing is in ruins, you can see that alongside the ruined shrine, there's a secret staircase by which the unscrupulous priest could sneak into, in behind the, the uh, idol and do the talking for the idol. Because as the scripture says, they have lips, but they speak not. And uh, there's a pipe that goes from the mouth of the idol down into this cavern. And just like uh, in, what was it, uh, Wizard of Oz, you know, where the wizard is speaking on a microphone. Clear in that ancient day, it was their equivalent of a microphone speaking out these answers to the petitions of the worshipers. Now, you know, you talk about idolatry to a group of intelligent people like you, sophisticated and all of that, and immediately you wonder, what in the world are you talking about? Why in the world are you telling us all this stuff? This is so ridiculous, it's absurd. No intelligent thinking person would, would worship something as ridiculous as Isis or worshiping the Ibis or worshiping the weasel or any of these things, would they? Well, of course, one thing is that before or even today, uh, all countries of the world, there is this kind of worship. One of the reasons that India is starving today is because their best source of food they won't touch. And as a result, the cattle eat up much of the grain. They would never think of killing a cow. They're sacred. And therefore, the people starve and the cattle eat their food. So don't say that no person would ever do this because uh, people today are still polytheists and they worship animals and they worship bugs and all of that but you say well, we're not that way and I realize that uh, in our old life before Christ most of us were deists that is we believed in a God maybe didn't think he had any interest in us but we believed there was a God, right? Um, probably most of us were theists. Uh, that is, we not only believed in, in, a, in a, a God's, God's existence, but we probably had some idea of a personal God. Quite a number of you, before you became a Christian, were monotheists. That is, you believed in one God. Uh, at least that was your profession. 
But if you examine life and people and their religion very carefully, you'll discover that the people that do not know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, by and large, are polytheists. That is, they worship. You understand worship. Worship is an Anglo-Saxon word which speaks of value, worth. It used to be worth-ship. It's what you put worth upon. It's what you put value upon. You go into almost any office, and most of you men you know, work in and around other people, go to an office, go to a shop, go wherever you go, listen to people talk, unbelievers. What are you going to hear? You're going to hear what they worship. They've got this car, you see, and they paid $25,000 for it. And, uh, but it's worth it. Oh, it'll do this and that and the other thing. And uh, there's a saying, you know, young people, young people uh, pick up on these cute little sayings. They don't last long. You've got to keep up with them in order to know what they're talking about. But uh, a few months ago, the thing that was going around among the young people was, man, I live for that. I live for that. Everything from cars to girls to everything. I live for that. Now they've changed it. They don't say that anymore. They say now, I die for that. So, you know, you've you got to keep up with all this. But, you know, it, it gives you an idea where, where their allegiance is. I live for this. I die for this. People talk this way. Not only that, but they're pretty serious about it. Uh, you see an unbeliever who's... Uh, car is in an accident and gets a dent or a scratch and you see the tears flowing, in spite of the fact that it's insured and they can get it fixed and all that you begin to realize, oh that's my first scratch, you know and you begin to realize they attach value to that car, don't they? What do you attach value to? You see we're talking in these days about some of the things that were a part of us in our old life as unbelievers. And then we became believers in Christ and hardly without realizing it, the habits of the old life crept back in so that some of the things that were a part of the old life and are thought of sometimes to be really exclusively the property of the unbeliever become the habit of the, unbeliever, of the believer as well. Polytheism is one of them. Because when you became a believer, you of course allied yourself with the true and living God. And theologically, I suppose every person in this room is a monotheist. Not just by profession, but you would say, I'm sure, by conviction. You're, you're committed to worship and serve God, only God. But the habit of attaching worth to worthless things is a very strong habit. And most of us, by that description, are polytheists. And it's polytheism that we want to talk about, not just tonight, but we're never in a hundred years going to finish tonight. So we'll talk about it this week and next week as well. It's a very, very important subject. 
because I believe that that Christians have as one of their worst habits of their old life the habit of attaching worth to other things and slipping into the attitude and even the actions of polytheism. It's hard for us to admit that. It's hard for me to admit that I'm an idolater, that I worship and serve more than the true and living God. That's hard. And I hope that you'll be just honest enough with yourself to admit if it's true and ask the Holy Spirit to make you a monotheist in the true sense of the word. What are the most important things in your life? Your career, your family, your bank account, sports, pleasure. What are the things that really count? With the Apostle John, 1 John 5, 21, we have to say, my little children, my little techna, my little born ones. Keep yourself from idols. Here he writes this marvelous book to Christians. Terrific book. Tells us about 1 John 1 9, you know. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These things have I written, he says in chapter 2, unto you that 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 you might have joy and, and that your joy might be full. These things have I written, he says, that you might know the propitiation that Christ has made for you, the substitution for your uh, substitutionary sacrifice for God's satisfaction so that you may accept in his sight. Uh, he goes on and he talks about, about love and he talks about, about joy and he talks about peace and all of those good things. We love the, the book of 1 John, the last verse of the last chapter. My little children, just one more word of counsel. Keep yourself from idols. Well, these people weren't idolaters. In the usual classic sense of the word, most of them had, had forsaken idols and turned to the living and true God. John says, just, just a tickler, just a reminder, just something to prompt your memory. Just keep it in mind. Keep yourself, guard yourself from idols. Dr. R.M.L. Waugh, in his book, The Preacher in the Greek New Testament, said this, We live in an age of God-makers. And then he lists some. Listen to this. Narcissus, the god of self. That was the god, you remember, that fell in love with his own reflection in the pool and then pined away because there wasn't uh, any, they, they you couldn't get together, you see couldn't get together with himself God of self is that a prevalent God in in your uh, shrine how about God of Mars the God of war man is plagued by the God of war you say well I'm not you know I'm basically a pacifist sort of guy you know what scripture says from whence come quarrels and fightings among you? Come they not even of your, your own lusts? You fight and war. You have not because you ask not. 
When was the last time you had a quarrel with someone? Scripture tells us we're to live peaceably with all men. Do we? Are you really a fighter when it comes to defending yourself? Bacchus, the god of wine, a real problem among Christians today. Venus, god of physical beauty. Many, many, many fine Christian people are worshiping this god. Eros, the goddess, god of love, that is sexual love. Apollo, the god of physique. Minerva, the goddess of science. There's one we could talk about. Fortuna, the goddess of luck. The golden calf, the god of money. Mammon, the god of material things. Which ones do you worship? Which ones, to which ones do you attach value and worth? See, we, we tend to involve ourselves in worshiping quite an array of idols. And again, we don't carve them out of gold and silver and wood. We don't, we don't put them on a shrine in our home and burn incense to them. But we, we just fail to realize that idolatry is first of all an attitude, and then it's an overt action. Have you ever thought of the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the attitude. Exodus 20, verse 3. The second commandment talks about the action. It says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water above the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. That's in verses 4 and 5. So the first of those has to do with an attitude. You, in your mind, in your heart, you shall have no other God before me. You will not think of anything above me. You will not put anything before me. You will, not put, you will exclude anything else from your life. See, we've got to understand this. That exclusive worship of God is, is simply where God is at the top, all right? And then everything else is subordinate to him. Everything. When you put anything else at the top, or let's say you put nothing at the top, a big fat zero is at the top. You say nothing's at the top. I just try to arrange everything properly here. And we put God down here so that he becomes one of the things listed in terms of our own life and our own priority, instead of seeing him as the all-pervading one, the one that controls everything else, just he become, God becomes an activity in our life. We go to church, we read the Bible, we, we do go through all of the motions. It may be a very prominent activity, but it's only one of the activities. I've got God here, I've got my family here, I've got my car here, I've got my job here, you see? And when you have it listed like that, then there is, you say, well, you know, this, it's, it's God first and everything else falls under that. But you see, if God is not all and in all, if he is not the all-consuming one, if he is not the only one you worship, then you see you're a polytheist. And what happens is this, 
instead of, of, of considering all of these things that we mentioned, the family and, and the material things, let's say, and the job or the career, uh, these other things, and consider that if I lose my job tomorrow, it wasn't worth anything anyway. If I lost my family, it really wasn't worth anything anyway compared to the relationship with God. These other things are simply in God's will, in God's purpose. God allows me to have these things. He allows me to have money as a stewardship. He allows me to have a family as an opportunity to raise up a godly seed for Him. But it's all related to, it's all related to Him. Everything is for His glory. My family has to be for my glory, uh, for His glory. My, my job has to be for His glory. Everything has to be for His glory. And if it's not for His glory, then you're an idolater. Because you're attaching worth to something other than God. That's the attitude. And the attitude then leads to the action. Because then in our overt life, we begin to think in terms of the family before we think in terms of God. We begin to think in terms of the job as being valuable, and therefore I would not jeopardize my job for the sake of my testimony. See what I mean? It's a strange sort of thing how we rearrange our thinking in categories in such a way that we can put God in his place. Israel tried to do that. You remember, they worshipped God and served other gods. How could they do that? They can't do it over here. There's no way, because God is all and in all. And therefore, everything relates to him. And the gods of the land could never relate to him. They went through the exercise of worshiping God. And they acknowledged that there was a true and living God. But you see, the idols of that day had to do with blessing on the economy, with blessing on the family, with all of these other things. And so all of these other gods took their place as a part of their polytheism. And it happens all the time with Christian people. They hardly realize it. So it's clear that idolatry, polytheism, begins in the mind and the heart. It's having something to whom you give precedence. And then the worship and the service to those things comes later. The first commandment really means that we're not to have anything beyond God. We begin with God and we stop with God. And then God can give us other things. Everything we have, everything we do is directly related to our submission as uh, to, to the, uh, the God of Israel, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and uh, who is the Lord of all the earth. Certainly there's a place for family. There's a, it's, it's perfectly legitimate to spend time and money on your family. But it's important to only do with your family and for your family the things that not only have the endorsement, but have the full blessing of Almighty God and are done for His glory. You should be consciously aware that next year when you go on vacation, you're taking your family on vacation for the glory of God. Now there's nothing wrong 
with packing up the camper and moving out and going with the family out into the wilderness somewhere. But you see, you don't go to the wilderness just for the sake of the wilderness. You go to the glory of God. And so many things in life can be done that way, but must be done consciously to the glory of the Lord. But what happens? You know, it puts a halt on some activities when we think of it that way. You think of your vacation last year. Was the Lord well pleased with all of the activities of that vacation? Was he well pleased? Tell you. If you give precedence to the family over God, that is idolatry. Now, I realize you have to go to work. Most of you have to go to work tomorrow. And uh, there's a lot to do. It's important. You, scripture says that that if you don't provide for your own family, then you've denied the faith and you're worse than an infidel. You've got to earn a living. How do you view your work? How do you view your job? Do you do it as men pleasers with eye service? Or do you do it as unto the Lord? The way you work, what you do, the things you say. Do you see your work as a ministry? Do you see it as... As, as your altar, do you recognize that, that, that God wants your allegiance there just as much as he wants it in any other place? What do you do when it's a matter of cheating a little bit or trimming a corner here or there or borrowing something from the office without permission or because everybody else does it or taking a noon hour that's longer than is allowed or long coffee breaks or sloughing off on the job or see what I mean so easy to do those things or to just do the work for the sake of the money without seeing it as a ministry and you see it becomes idolatry um, there's nothing wrong with sports but do they take precedence in your life I really got a conviction about this um, one time a number of years back. It was before I even came here. I think you've probably heard me say before, I'm an avid sports fan, and it really doesn't matter what the sport is. I think I've just about played them all and, and uh, enjoy them all. I know enough about most every sport to get something out of it and enjoy it. And um, so... Uh, I really get into football, I, uh, into professional football, uh, primarily because uh, you, when you have uh, teams that play as many games as they do and uh, the, the teams me, re remain somewhat the same uh, in makeup, and so you begin to identify with certain teams and, and identify with their players and you read things in the paper about them. And uh, I... Uh, I, I really was getting emotionally involved in the games as we were moving through the playoffs and up to the Super Bowl. And that was in the early days of the Super Bowl. And I was a, I, I really was a, uh, an AFC fan. I, I, I had been from the very beginning and earned some loyalties uh, to the AFC teams and just uh, out of uh, going for the underdog, you know. And uh, 
I got real excited when one of the AFC teams in the first Super Bowl uh, or in the in the Super Bowl where the Jets won uh, away from the Green Bay Packers the 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 game and uh, and won the Super Bowl for the first time. I really got into that. And then as the years progressed, I more and more was into it. I really looked forward to Super Bowl time, and I became so caught up in who's going to get to the Super Bowl. And when the thing didn't go my way, I got sick, physically ill, upset, angry, everything else. And you know, I, it happened to me so subtly. I, I didn't intend to be that way. Good night, I'm a preacher. I'm not supposed to be that way, right? And uh, I, I never had thought of sports being an idol in my life. I enjoyed it. I could take it or leave it, I thought. And here I was, moping around for a week, taking the edge off my spiritual life because some stupid team lost. And I got thinking, I thought, you know, the players on the team are going to get over this before I do. <laughs> they don't feel as bad as I do. I'm tearing myself up and there's not a thing I can do about it. And it has not even one little bit of eternal value. Not a little bit. I thought, how stupid, how absolutely stupid to think that way. Isn't it crazy how those things can grab you? I haven't been sick over a game since. God just took me to the woodshed on the thing and hung me out to dry and began to realize it's just not worth it, folks. But you see, that's what can happen if you happen to be a sports fan. It can grab you that way. You say, well, I'm not a sports fan. I'm off the hook. Don't you kid yourself. There's something else. There's an amazing little article that came out, oh, toward the end of the summer. Some of you may have seen it. It was talking about the rapid increase in divorces in Silicon Valley. And uh, one, of the, one of the most rapid increase rates uh, in the divorce rate in all of the history of record keeping on this subject. And the one of the major reasons given for that divorce rate going up the way it was is because of personal computers. Men are saying, I'm glad I'm divorced. I got more time with my computer. That's stupid. Really dumb. But they admitted to it. I just soon not have a family, not have a wife. I've got a personal computer. It takes a lot of time. I want to invent new programs and all of this kind of stuff. It's ridiculous. It can become like a vice around your neck. Polytheism. Other gods. Placing value and worth on those things that are not at all valuable. When you're, whether you're working on a computer or, or watching a football game or Whatever it may be, just remember, if God speaks to your heart about going and talking to a neighbor about his soul, you better go. If you don't go, guess what? You know that's got a grip on you. It's church time. You know you should be there. Not because of some legalism, but just simply because you know you know 
that you have an obligation to people, that you have a ministry, that you that you you want to learn more of God, that, you know, all of these things that may be involved, you've got a motivation and you have that tug. I want to watch the World Series or I want to watch this or that or the other thing. I want to play with my computer. I'm right in the middle of a, a big program here. I've got to I've got to finish that, or or perhaps television program has got a grip on you. You get caught up, you know the 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 uh, uh, soap operas and soap opera type programs that they now are having in the evening, like Dallas and Dynasty, and some of these that leave a, a cliffhanger, uh, so that you've got to come back next week. Those programs are designed to be habit forming. They're designed to grab you and grip you so that you can't let go because you just have to see what happened. I'll just watch one more week even though it's not the kind of thing I really should be watching but I, I've got to find out what happened to this person. Besides, I may be able to get a good spiritual illustration from it for my Sunday school class or something like that. See? You make all kinds of excuses. But I'll tell you this right now. Just think of it for a moment. If you have a television program that is on, let's say, tomorrow night, and in the middle of that, you cannot turn it off. You cannot bring yourself to turn it off for any reason whatsoever. Then it's got you. It's got you. And it's become an idol. That's the test. I don't mean that it's wrong to watch television. There are times where it may be very good to watch television. Certain programs might be very edifying. That may sound strange, but there are things on television that, that are worth watching. But if you can't turn it off, you're fighting a battle about it. If it's not as easy as pressing the button. You see, that's, a, that's how easy it is to turn it off. And guess what? The program's going to turn out the same no matter whether you watch it or not. That's the thing. It's hard to believe. You think that rooting on the sidelines is going to make a difference. That's what I used to think about football, you know. My rooting there in front of the television set was going to make the outcome of the game. And if they lost, it's my fault. I didn't cheer loud enough, you know. Makes you afraid to leave the television set because you think that. It's become an idol. It's become an idol. Now, anything, would you hear this? Anything that attempts to displace God in any way in your life is idolatry. And remember, God is all-pervasive. He wants you to dedicate your whole body to Him as a, as a burnt offering. Do you, do you understand the significance of the burnt offering? The burnt offering was the offering that was totally consumed. Totally consumed. And that burnt offering which is illustrated in Psalm 40, is the, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, not in his death as much as in his life, though the death is included, but he was the burnt offering, totally consumed. There's one place in the Old Testament where it says that the burnt offering is God's food. It's God's meal. God wants, if you please, to totally consume it himself. And Jesus Christ said said, I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. 
Christ was totally consumed with doing God's will and nothing else. Nothing else. And the thing we have to realize is we only have time in our life, only have time to do His will. We don't have time for anything else. From the moment you're saved till the moment you die, God gives you exactly the amount of time that you have to do His will. And any time you step aside, something isn't being done that should be done. You're going to have to shortcut somewhere. The more time you waste by following after other things, worshiping other gods, the less time you're going to have to, to, to win your crown, and to have the gold and silver and precious stones laid up in heaven. It was Susanna Wesley who said, Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures the sense of God, or takes off your relish for spiritual things, that is sin to you. Or we might paraphrase it, that is idolatry to you. An illustration of that kind of subtle idolatry is over in 1 Samuel 15. Will you look there for a moment? 1 Samuel chapter 15. You know the story. Saul had been been told to kill Agag, all the uh, all of Amalek's house, because they were utterly despised in the eyes of the Lord. There were very good reasons for that, because of their their murder of a multitude of. Of, of babies and children offering them to Moloch, a terrible scourge upon the land. And God in military conquest said, slay them. And it says in verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. See their value? Look at their evaluation. God said, there isn't a thing good not a thing. They're all accursed. Saul says, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. You see? And he was willing to jeopardize his own kingdom by disobeying the Lord because what he evaluated as being good, God had condemned. So he says they took all that was good and were not willing. There was no yieldedness of their will to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. You know, it's an amazing thing. You know, you get an old clunker of a car. Just an old clunker. And uh, believe me, you know, that thing falls apart in the driveway and they haul it off for junk and there's very little pain because there's very little value. Right? They'll haul it off for about 25 bucks. You pay them. If you want to buy it back, it'll cost you about 25. You haul it away. It's useless, worthless, junk. Won't run anymore. Transmission shot, motor's gone, wheels are shot. It's had it. And when that goes, it doesn't have much pain. In fact, you probably say good riddance to bad rubbish, right? Gives you an excuse for going out and get a new car. But let that same thing happen to a new car. You know what happens? Oh, 
See, everything despised and worthless, you can throw that away. Look at the stuff you sell at the garage sale. You go through your garage sale stuff sometime. Just, just do this, all right? Take the stuff you're going to sell at a garage sale. Go through it. And with each item, try to remember back when you bought it. And think of how you would have felt if somebody had gotten into your car the day you bought it and stolen it. All right? Then look at your price tag, 10 cents. Right? Oh, maybe, maybe 50 for that one. Or maybe a dollar. Okay? Now just, just think that through for a minute and you understand what I'm trying to say to you. When it's worthless, you can cast it off, give it to goodwill, take an income tax deduction and say we're even. Alright? But when you first bought it, you know how you felt about it. Now, they threw away everything worthless. People that were lame and crippled and blind, they could kill them easy. Agag, the best of the sheep and the oxen and all of that, oh, you don't want to throw something like that away. It's too good. God said it's bad. Man said it's good. Problem with evaluation. And it became idolatry. Look at it. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not carried out my commandments. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. It was told Samuel, uh, saying, Saul cometh to Carmel, and so he followed him and so on. And then it says in verse 16, Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true? Though you were little in your own, uh, own eyes, or made the head of the tribes of Israel, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission, said, Go utterly destroy the sinners, Am uh, Malachites, and fight against them until they're exterminated. Isn't that what God told you to do? Just checking, you know, make sure you understood the order. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil, and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? You evaluated, you decided what God had said bad was good. Now look, in verse 20, Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and went on the mission with which the Lord sent me, and have brought back Agag, the king of the Malachites, and utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Just a few exceptions here and there. But the people, the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, choices for things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Now that'll impress God. Make a sacrifice of it. Now watch this. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You can't bribe God. The Lord doesn't get excited at all about that kind of sacrifice. Now watch this. Here's our key. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Why? Now watch this. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. It's not just the usual word for witchcraft, kasaf, but it's the word kesam, which means a soothsayer. And it has to do with, with satanic worship, and it has to do 
with the fact that in Isaiah 14, 14, the basic sin of Satan was pride. When Satan, when Satan said, I will exalt myself above the Most High, he was rebellious. Rebellion is as a sin of divination. And, watch now, insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. When God says something is bad and you say something is good, then that becomes idolatry. When God has the right to possess all that you have, He is the owner of all things because He's the giver of every good and perfect gift, and you refuse to do something that the Lord has told you to do, you are guilty of idolatry. Because the thing you want to do has become more valuable than God. The smile of people has become more important than the smile of God. Things have been, become more important than the worthy God. You are worshiping something other than God. You are counting that as having value and having worth. And I'll tell you, we better fight it. We better think it through. Because remember, when Paul wrote to the, to the, the, the church at uh, Colossae in the Lycus Valley, these well-taught Christians, he warned them, covetousness, beware of covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. You say, but I want... That's idolatry. But I want this, I want that, I want... Th That's idolatry. The attitude of the Christian, in, in the purest sense of the word, the attitude should be always, what does God want? What does God want? And you see, we live in a me-first society. We are guilty of narcissism. We think of ourselves. We fall in love with our, our, our reflection in the mirror. We think in terms of what we want and what's going to make us happy and all of those things. Those are, those are the things that become the all-consuming passion of our heart and life. And my friend, they're dust. They're useless. They're worthless. They're rubbish. The whole lot of them. They have no real value. We use a term, you know, real estate. Real estate. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful how much value you place on your real estate. You know why? I can guarantee it's going up in smoke. The whole kit and caboodle. God's going to blow the whole thing up, make it over. All these people, so worried about the environment. You know, well, I think we ought to be good stewards of what God has given us, all right? Let me go on record on that. But then I'm going to say this. It's all throwaway junk. The whole bit. Oh, our beautiful lands, our beautiful forests and mountains, God says, rubbish. He's going to destroy the whole thing. It's going to melt with a fervent heat. And God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Do you know why the mountains and the trees and all of this is rubbish? I'll tell you why. Because righteousness doesn't dwell there. That's why. And we got problems with all of the pollution and all of the rest of it. Just remember, you're going to have a real problem if you stay here and watch it go up in smoke. I don't plan to stick around. Don't know about you. 
But insubordination toward God amounts to idolatry and it matters not in what area you find it. God speaks to your heart about anything and I really don't care what it is. Anything. You play tiddlywinks with manhole covers. God says don't do it anymore. You don't do it. Not because you can understand, but because you know this, God is God. Every time God speaks to you about something, and you're not willing to lay it on the altar, you've made an idol out of that thing, and it's got you, and you're not going to have real fellowship with God until that thing is taken and laid on the altar. I don't care what it is. Perfectly legitimate things. Our life is filled with them. But you see, there's not time in our life to do everything we want to do and to have everything we want to have. There's just not time. And I think a lot of times, and I, you know that I'm, I try to be as fair about this as I can be, because I believe that God wants us to enjoy life too. He gives us richly all things to enjoy. But I'll tell you, sometimes there's, there's a need... Of where our where our missionaries have a have a desperate need, you see in the bulletin this last the last month, uh, the month of uh, September, we were only able to pay about seventy some odd percent of the support to our missionaries. Why? Why? You know. Spent a nickel here and a nickel there on things you wanted, maybe. Is that right? Didn't have enough left over. And I, I don't harp on that. I don't, I don't talk a whole lot about giving. I believe that what you give and how you give and all of the rest of it is a matter between you and the Lord. I'll never squeeze you for money. But the Bible says a lot about money. I'll preach it when it's there. And this is one of those times, all right? When you wrestle as to whether whether to buy that thing that you've been wanting or whether to give it to God and God is speaking to your heart about it. I'm not saying, not when I'm talking about it, when God's speaking to your heart. And you know in your heart when that time is. You know what you ought to do. We're all like that little kid, you know. His mother gave him a nickel for an ice cream cone. Boy, that's an old story. <laughs> gave him a nickel for an ice cream cone and a nickel to give to Jesus at, at Sunday school. And the boy's walking along the street and he drops one of the nickels, and it rolls down into a gutter. You know what he said? Well, God, there goes your nickel. All right? And that's the way we reckon. I'm a little short at the end of the month. Well, I guess I'm going to have to cut God out. Israel was always told to give the first fruits. We ought to get into the habit of of looking at the first of every month or you know, whenever you happen to get a paycheck, whenever you get that paycheck, first of all, say, all right, here's God's part. Then add up your bills. Say, put God first. Let God, let God be the one that you acknowledge as being Lord over all your affairs. One of the amazing things is that in the, the people in the book of Malachi, we're not giving to God. We're not being obedient to God in regard to, in regard to giving. What happened? 
but God sent them crop failure. And then he sent pestilence. He sent something else. You see, when, when God, when you've got some of God's money and uh, you don't give it to God, then God sends a bill collector. And the bill collector is Satan himself. God says, okay, they didn't give it to me. I don't want it now. If they don't give it to me with a willing heart, I don't want it. So I don't want it. But I'm giving you, Satan, the right to go collect it. And Satan brings the pestilence, all of the rest, and he collects. You're going to pay. The doctor, the dentist, the car repair man, you'll pay. Sooner or later, you'll pay. It'll cost you probably more because there's interest tacked on, right? God doesn't want your money if you're not willing to give it. But it's going to be collected. It's a cinch you're not going to get it. And so you see, your money can become an idol unless it's all God's. If you see your bank account as being God's bank account, and if God wants it, if he lays it upon my heart, I'm going to delve into that and I'm going to give it. I'm not going to worry about where my next meal is coming from. I'm going to be faithful as a steward before God. Idolatry. Now the most subtle God that we face is in the passage of Scripture that we want to talk about next week. And I think that it will, it will really bring home this whole idea because it is a passage on idolatry. And it tells you exactly what to do about it. And I hope that you'll be able to be back next week so you don't miss that part of it. That's a good place to quit tonight, and it's time. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your provision, your marvelous provision for our need. But, oh, Lord, we are guilty. We confess it. I confess it. That so often these things creep in as subtle little habits and we begin to think of what really has value begin to put down in the fly leaf of our own memory the things that we think are valuable in life the things that we think are important when you've said in your word so very clearly that they're not important that you're important eternity is important our reward at the judgment seat of Christ is important